Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 together this morning as we continue our series through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's the greatest sermon ever preached, and we're walking verse by verse through this sermon uh, throughout the summer. And so today we come to a section in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus is going to talk about how to express the true righteousness of the kingdom. And uh, over chapter six, he's gonna be talking about several areas of our spirituality. But this morning, we're gonna look at what Jesus has to say about the subject of giving. How do we give as an act of righteousness that is done for God's glory alone? Now, let me just acknowledge uh, the subject of giving is not a comfortable one for me to talk about. One of the reasons for that is because I know that one of the common critiques that people have of the church is the impression or the perception that uh, the church only cares about me because of my money. Or every time I go to church, they're always asking for my money or something along those lines. And so I feel that. And uh, maybe that's what you have been thinking. If If this is, for instance, your first time ever to come to a Christian church, and maybe that has been your objection that, oh, the preacher only ever talks about money. That makes me nervous because today I'm going to talk about money. And so I know that might be in some of your minds. And I just want to assure you that uh, this is not something that I talk about all the time. In fact, I've been your pastor almost a year. I think this is the first sermon I've preached about this subject. And the reason that I'm talking about it is because this is what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And so whatever the text of Scripture that I'm walking through, whatever it talks about, that's what I talk about. And every part of God's Word is important, including this one. And so even though this may be an uncomfortable subject to talk about, it's an important one because it's in our Bibles. And so we want to see what Jesus has to say about it today. Amen? I was uh, driving down the road a couple of years ago and heard an ad on the radio that caught my attention. And you know uh, how sometimes you listen to a commercial or an advertisement, you're not sure what it's talking about till the very end. Anybody like you're not sure, is this toothpaste or is it jewelry or is it shampoo? (laughs) This was one of those ads. It was an ad encouraging people to participate in charity around the holidays. It was Christmas time. And so this was an ad encouraging people to give to their favorite charity. And then in the last 10 seconds, you find out it's an ad for Levi jeans. And so it encouraged people to buy some jeans and it used this line. If you're going to do good this holiday season, you should look good doing it. Levi jeans. If you're going to do good, you should look good doing it. Now that really captures the spirit of the age, especially as it relates to the matter of giving. People are, I think, willing to give, but they want to be noticed for how much they give. There was a very popular shoe brand when I was in college where if you bought this pair of shoes, the the whole thing was you buy a pair of shoes and then they will give the same pair of shoes to an orphan in Africa. And so it kind of became like a name brand thing. And so were you wearing these shoes? It started with the letter T, you know, and then they added on sunglasses. You could buy a pair of sunglasses and they'd duplicate it and that kind of thing. And it almost became like, well, we're, we're charitable and we want to be known for it. Jesus has something to say about that mentality in Matthew chapter 6, just to situate our passage this morning into the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7 is Jesus talking about the way of the kingdom. This is what it looks like to live with Jesus as your king. Sermon on the Mount is a kind of manifesto 
on the kingdom. And Jesus begins with the Beatitudes in the first part of Matthew chapter 5. He says that uh, the, the way of the kingdom begins with a recognition of our own spiritual bankruptcy, which leads then to a mourning or a brokenness over our sin, which then leads to a place of humility, which then leads you to be hungry and thirsty for the righteousness that you can't produce, but that God can fill you with. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' explanation of the righteousness that Jesus fills you with when when you come to Him hungry and thirsty. And so we looked at that last week as we looked at chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. This is Jesus describing the inside out kind of change that God brings into our life. It's Jesus describing the heart change that, that results in a truly righteous life. Uh, as we, we saw in chapter 5, the result being that we are salt and light in the world, making an impact on those around us, Jesus tells us. But now when you come to chapter 6 and verse 1, Jesus is going to clarify something about that righteousness that He produces in us and how we should practice it. Okay, so when you come to to faith in Jesus, listen, you are coming to someone who is unrighteous, who has no righteousness on your own. You come in faith to Christ and He changes you from the inside out. He begins to produce His righteousness in you, but He wants you to live that righteousness out in a particular kind of way. And this is what chapter 6 is about. So let's look down at chapter 6 and verse 1. Look at what Jesus says. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness, right? This newfound righteousness that Christ is producing in you. Be careful not to practice this righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So there's a single principle in verse 1. Jesus is saying we don't live righteous lives in order to be noticed by others. That's really the theme verse for the rest of chapter 6, that that when God changes you from the inside out and you become to, to, to live a righteous life, that you don't put on a show of righteousness in order to be seen or applauded by people. Back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8 in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Our righteousness ought to be sincere with pure motives, not to impress others, but simply as an expression of our love for God, rooted in His love for us. And the reality is one of the temptations that each of us faces, and I've seen this again and again, I've seen it even in my own life, is that once Jesus begins to change you from the inside out, and you move radically from darkness to light, from death to life, from from a a life of sin to a life where God begins to produce righteousness in you. One of Satan's subtle temptations in our life is to allow spiritual pride to creep up. In other words, to become almost spiritually arrogant about the change that God is working in your life. You look at what you used to be like, you're not like that anymore, and you become a little proud about that. And, And it can be tempting. Every one of us can be tempted to begin to kind of show off our new righteous lives, to begin to do acts of righteousness in order to impress other people so that they'll look and see how much we've changed. And and that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, listen, you should not display your righteousness with what I'm calling a show righteousness. We talk about self-righteousness sometimes. Jesus is is going to talk about that in chapter 7. But in chapter 6, he's really addressing show righteousness. That is where we, we do acts of righteousness that are not done primarily to please God, but to impress people. That's not what God desires for our lives. God wants us to do good, but 
but we're not called to look good while doing it. Jesus wants us to have a true, genuine, sincere spirituality that is done for an audience of one. The things that you do that are righteous are not done for the applause of others, but simply because you love Him. Amen? And so in the next few verses, Jesus is going to flesh that principle out by giving three examples of, uh, of areas where we practice our righteousness and where we might be tempted to do that for show or do it for applause or do it for the crowd. He's going to talk about the area of giving, the area of praying, and the area of fasting. It's possible to give in order to impress people, to pray in order to impress people. You remember Mark chapter 12, Jesus talks about the Pharisees, and one of the descriptions He gave the Pharisees is that they love to pray long prayers for appearance's sake. Have you ever, don't raise your hand, but have you ever heard that? Have you ever seen somebody, like they pray in perfect King James English. It's impressive, but you kind of get the hint that maybe they're not praying to Jesus, they're praying more to impress you. It's possible in our prayers. It's also possible in our fasting. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. Jesus says, you know, if you're fasting, do it for the Lord. Do it in secret. It's, it's easy to kind of mope around and look like so hungry to try to get people to ask you why you look so miserable. And you're like, well, I'm fasting because <laughs> I love the Lord so much. Jesus is like, don't do it for show. All right, so that's what he's going to do. Verses 1 through 4 has to do with giving. Verses 5 through 15 has to do with authenticity in our praying. Verses 16 through 18 has to do with authenticity in our fasting. But today, this morning, we're going to look at this first aspect of our spirituality that Jesus discusses, and that is the aspect of giving. How should we give? And so here's what I want to do with you this morning. Just I want to talk about, because, because giving is a touchy area, a lot of people don't like to talk about giving. They don't want to talk about politics. <laughs> they don't want to talk about giving. There's some subjects that are like no-no subjects to talk about. So I want to talk about why do we give? Why is it important as a Christian that I give? I'm going to just touch on how much should, should we give. And then we're going to dive into verses 2 through 4 and just talk about how we should give and what ways should we give. So let's talk first of all about wh- why should you care about generosity? Why should you give? The, the truth is in the first century when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the original hearers, giving was an assumed part of life. If you were a Jewish person, you gave, period. It was just a part of your life. But I don't think that we can assume this today. So let me just start by saying this. If you're a Christian, giving should be a regular and important part of your life. Amen? And just because this is an uncomfortable subject to talk about, I don't want you to hear me that this is an unimportant subject to talk about. Because... The matter of giving actually has to do with your spiritual health. What you spend your time on, how you use your talents, and how you spend your finances, all of those things are indications of what you love the most. If you spend all of your time on this thing, it tells me you love this thing. If you spend a lot of money on X, Y, or Z, it tells me you love that. That's something that's deep-rooted in your heart, something you're passionate about. And so how we spend our finances, how we give, reflects something about our spiritual health. Jesus indicates this later on in chapter 6. If you'll just let your eyes drop down to verse 21. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your what? Heart 
will be also. You see what Jesus is saying is where your heart is, it's going to express itself in where you spend your money. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. And so giving, the matter of giving is, a, is an important aspect of your spiritual health. So why should you care about giving? Let me give you five reasons just quickly. Number one, we should give because God already owns it all. The truth is, we are stewards, not owners. Everything that we have and everything that we enjoy is not something that we own. It feels like something that we own. The reality is God owns it all. It all belongs to Him, and we are called to be stewards. To be a steward means to be a, a manager of something that belongs to someone else. And everything that we have or everything that we enjoy is something that the Lord has entrusted to us that actually belongs to Him. Psalm 24 in verse 1 says that everything in the world belongs to Him. Some of you have a translation that says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means that the Lord owns everything. Everything that you have belongs to God. It doesn't ultimately belong to you. It's something that God has trusted to you. And you're a steward. You're a manager. God has trusted you with what you've got to steward that in a way that is faithful, in a way that is for His glory. And so the question is, Donald Whitney puts it this way, the question is, it's, it's not how much of my money should I give to God? But rather, how much of God's money should I keep for myself? You see, it all belongs to Him. The reason that we're called to live generous lives, is it's not that this all belongs to me and therefore how much of it should I give away. God owns it all and He's entrusted it to me. So the question really is, how do I steward this most for God's glory? If the Lord has entrusted you with a house, with a home, do you realize that that is to be stewarded for His glory? The question you ought to be asking yourself is, how can I steward this home for the glory of God? Maybe God has given you your home, your house, not primarily for your own comfort, but, but maybe He wants you to use it to be hospitable, to host the stranger, to host neighbors, to host uh, lost friends, to where they can hear the gospel and see what a Christian family looks like in your home. That's a, tr that's a sacred trust. The Lord has said, I trust you enough for you to have a house. We're called to be faithful stewards to say, how can I leverage this for God's glory? How can I utilize this house for God's glory? If you have a career, a job, that's not just an accident of your life. It's not just an incidental thing in your life. God has put you where He's put you, whatever you happen to do, and He's entrusted that job to you to steward for His glory. So if you're an attorney, the question is, how do I practice law for the glory of God? If you're a business person, how do I operate my business for God's glory? If you're an educator in the classroom, how do I leverage my position of influence in the lives of students for the glory of God? If you're a homemaker, how do I pour myself into my family for the glory of God, right? You, you've been entrusted a stewardship. If you have a bank account that has dollars in it, that's a stewardship. The Lord has trusted those dollars to you, whether it's $10 or $10,000 or $10 million. All of that, doesn't really matter the amount, all of that has been entrusted to you as a steward. And so the question is, how do I leverage what God has trusted to my stewardship for His glory? So, all right, now I'm going to start preaching on that. I better move to number two. All right, we give because God owns it all. Number two, we, we give because we're called to give. 
The Bible calls us to give as a matter of a, a Christian obedience, of discipleship. Notice in verse 2, Jesus says, when you give. He doesn't say if you decide to give. He says when you give. This is an assumed part of our life. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, God loves a what? Cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. He's called us to give. He's called us to give cheerfully. This is an assumed part of the Christian life. Number three, we are called to give. Uh, we should care about giving because God already owns it all, number one. Number two, because we're called to give. Number three, because God has given generously to us. Do you know that God is fundamentally the most generous being in the universe? Think about all He's given us. John 3.16 Many of your life verses, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God is a giver down deep into his bones. Okay, if God had bones. He's a giver. He doesn't have bones. Okay, that was a joke. It was funnier than what you laughed. Um, <laughs> deep down inside, God is fundamentally generous. Why should we care about giving? Because God, do you, have you ever thought about how much God has given to you? Think about God's great generosity to you. He's given you freedom from slavery. Freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom from slavery to death. He's given you the gift of redemption. He's redeemed our life out of the pit. He's given us the gift of adoption as sons and daughters of the King. He's given us the gift of forgiveness of our sin, all of the sin in our life, the guilt, the shame. He wipes that out through His work on the cross and the resurrection so we can be forgiven and made new. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, who, which is God's presence in our life, gives us power to obey. He gives us the gift of a hope and a future, eternity in God's presence forever and ever, which means that no matter how difficult life happens to be right now, there is hope and there is a future. Think about the generosity of God. Have you ever just sat and meditated on all that God has given to you? When you think about the generosity of God to you, the proper response to that, God has been generous to me, so I will be generous to others. See, that's how we respond to God's generosity. If you really understand what God has given to you, you will be a giver. Number four, we give. Why should we care about giving? We give because there are needs all around us. Notice when, what Jesus says in verse two, whenever you give to the poor, it's interesting, Jesus is talking about in chapter 6 a particular kind of giving. Some, an old word for this is almsgiving. Almsgiving was something that you do in the life of Israel for the poor. It's a specific gift to, to those who are impoverished. Jesus says when you give alms, when you give to the poor. You see, Jesus is indicating the fact that if you look around, there are people who are in need around you. One of the reasons that Christians should care about giving is simply because of the vast need all around us. And if you look throughout the history of the church, it has always been Christians who have cared about caring for the sick, and they start hospitals, caring for the uneducated, and they start schools, caring for the poor, and they give radically and generously, caring for the, the orphan, and they start orphanages. That's the heritage of the Christian church, and that's part of why we give, is we look not with blinders in our own Christian bubble, we look with eyes wide open to the needs of the world. Consider the needs of the world. Just look on the screen at some of these statistics. 795 million people in the world do not have an adequate supply of food. That's according to the UN uh, World Food Program. According to World Vision, 719 million people, that's almost 10% of the world's population, are living on less than $2.15 a day. Children and youth 
account for about two-thirds of the world's poor, women represent a majority in most regions. 24% of the world's population, which equates to 1.9 billion people, live in fragile contexts. The fragile context is characterized by impoverished conditions and dire circumstances. By 2030, more than half of the world's poor will live in fragile contexts. About 63% of people who are older than 15 have no schooling or only some basic education. 593 million children are experiencing poverty. And look right here in our own country, over 37 million people were living in poverty in the U.S. in 2021. Children account for 11.1 million of those. So if you had breakfast this morning then you're, you're experiencing what's called food security. You don't have to worry about where your next meal is going to come from. You just need to realize not everybody experiences that. There are, there's great need. And so one of the reasons that Christians give and give generously is because of the needs of the world around us. Here's the fifth and final reason that we give. Hear me. We give not because God needs us to give or because the church needs it, Okay. If you never give another dollar in your life, God is going to be just fine. Amen? Because the Bible tells us He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and He owns the hills as well. So, so we don't give because God needs you to give. We don't give because God is impoverished. And we don't give because the church needs you to give. Okay, if you never gave another dollar in your life, Marbury Baptist Church would be just fine. That's the truth. <clears throat> we enjoy a wonderfully comfortable auditorium to gather and worship. We've got lights and most of the time air conditioning and, you know, comfortable seats. The truth is, if something happened cataclysmic in our economy and the lights went off and we had to sell the building, you know, the church would still be the church. The church would still be fine. We don't have to have this to be the church. Amen? So you don't give because God needs it. You don't give because the church needs it. You give because you need it. And that's backwards. It's ironic. It's part of the upside-down kingdom. You give it. You give because you need it. The reason that we give is because we are created to imitate a God who is generous. The reason that God calls us to give is because He wants us to form into people who look something more like Jesus. And part of how we look more like Jesus is by being generous, by giving. Dave Ramsey put it this way. Dave Ramsey says that when we give, it crushes our hearts, and reforms us into something that looks and acts a little bit more like Christ. I want you just to consider that quote for a minute. When we give, it crushes our hearts. <clears throat> what does he mean by that? Well, he means that each and every one of us, we, we are, we tend, the human heart tends to idolize stuff. We tend to elevate it, make it more important, cling to it. We tend to be tight-fisted, there's a little Scrooge in every one of us, little misers that wants to cling. Giving crushes that. Giving helps us address our idolatries. When I'm idolizing stuff, it's the act of letting go of that stuff that begins to crush that idolatry in me. Does that make sense? So the act of generosity crushes something in me, and it crushes something that needs to be crushed. Have you ever been moved to give, and you think about that dollar amount in your mind, and then it's like too much in your mind? You're like, ooh, no, mm, too much. I can't give that. 
there's a little something in your heart right there that's coming up that needs to be crushed. And part of the way that we crush it is by opening our hands and being generous with other people. And God actually uses that to reform us, to, to shape us into something that looks and acts a little bit more like Christ. Listen, you are never more like Jesus than when you forgive or you give. You're never more like Jesus than when you forgive or you give. If you forgive, that, that assumes you've been hurt in some way. And instead of exacting revenge and the person who's hurt you, you, you release your right to revenge. You extend grace. There's a redemptive moment, maybe a restorative moment. There's forgiveness that happens. You are literally acting like Jesus in that moment when you forgive. The same thing is true when you give. When you let go of something that you want to hang on to that you could use for yourself. In other words, if I clung to this, then I could benefit from this in some way. But instead, I'm going to let go so that you can benefit in some way. That is, you're literally, when you do that, you're acting like Jesus, who, think about Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or hung onto, but instead emptied himself by becoming a servant. Right? Jesus pours himself out. He could have enjoyed the privileges of heaven for himself. Instead, he gives away so that you might benefit. You see, so the act of generosity, the act of giving actually helps to shape me into someone who looks a little bit more like Christ than, than before. Now, let me just a, a address a question here. You might be wondering, well, does that mean that it's wrong to have things? Well, let me just say, no. It's not wrong to have things. It's wrong when your things have you. And part of how you keep your things from having you is by the act of giving, the regular practice <clears throat> of generosity. Listen, God is not calling you to live a life of poverty necessarily. If He calls you to that, then do that. But I find if you look out in the kind of the evangelical landscape, you'll hear out there the prosperity gospel. You've heard of the prosperity gospel. It's like if you believe in Jesus, your bank account will be full, health, wealth, wisdom, all those things. That's not the gospel. But then there are some circles where there's the poverty gospel. And that is, you have to sell all your stuff, give it to the poor. It's kind of a social gospel. That's also not the gospel. The gospel is the God, about the God who is rich and yet became poor for our sake, so that we who were poor might become spiritually wealthy in Him. So we're not saying that you have to sell everything you've got and give it away to the poor. I had a good friend uh, that I pastored a number of years ago. He was very successful in business, had multiple businesses, multimillionaire, but Jesus really got a hold of his life. And we went to lunch at Buffalo Wild Wings one day, and he was just trying to grapple. Like, how do I, how do I get serious about Jesus? I, I love the Lord. I want to be serious about my faith. And he just asked me sincerely, pastor, should I sell everything I've got and give it away? And like, go be a pastor or something? I said, well, listen, if God's calling you to be a pastor, go be a pastor. God's calling you to sell everything and give it away, sell it and give it away. But maybe God has given you the gift of making money so that you can leverage that for the kingdom. I don't have that gift. Some of you do. Some of you who are entrepreneurs, is that right? Did I get that out the right way? Entrepreneur, say that five times fast. Some of you have an, an entrepreneurial gifting. Use that for God's glory. John Wesley said, make all you can so that you can give all you can. You don't have to take a vow of poverty. Maybe the Lord has given you the ability to make money so that you can be radically generous and further mission causes. And you can put missionaries on the field and you can put seminary students uh, through seminary and you can help meet the needs of the poor in your community. So listen, if you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, 
Goodness gracious, I'm struggling with that word today. Entrepreneur. Don't ask me to spell that word. (laughs) If you are an entrepreneur, get after it. Use that gift for God's glory. This is not saying that that you, you need to take a vow of poverty or anything of that nature, but that God, God's greatest good for you is for you to look like Christ. For you to look like Christ means an open-handedness with what He's entrusted to you. Think about R.G. Letourneau, a, a gifted businessman, but who was radically generous, gave away 90% of his income and lived on 10%. We need some men and women who are committed to Christ-likeness in that way that say, Lord, whatever you've trusted me with, however you've called me, I'm going to use that and steward that for your glory alone. All right, so that's why we should give. Let me just move quickly to how much should we give? Okay, now Jesus doesn't tell us the answer to that in this passage, and I think that's important because I think that there is a, a, an element where we need to leave room for the Spirit. We need to, to, to give space for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives in terms of how much we should give. In the Old Testament, if you look at the Old Testament, the way that people would give is this, that the, the Jewish people would give what was called a tithe. A tithe is a word that just simply means tenth. And the idea was that they would give the first 10% of their increase to the Lord. Now, that might have been shekels. It might have been chickens. It might have been crops, okay? But whatever the Lord entrusted to them, they'd give 10% of that as a tithe. And then above and beyond that 10%, they would occasionally give offerings. This would be the things like alms, give offerings for the poor. And so the way many Christians have applied that idea is to tithe 10% of their income And then they may give special offerings above and beyond that 10%. Maybe they want to give a special offering to missions or maybe to benevolence or maybe a special project that their church is participating in, but they tithe 10% and then they go above and beyond that tithe to give an offering. I would say that I believe that a tithe for a Christian should be the floor, not the ceiling of our giving. It's a good starting place to aim for that, to say, Lord, I want to bring you my first and my best. That's the idea with a tithe. I want to bring you my first and my best, and I want to live a life of radical generosity. Here's the idea. If you have experienced the wealth of God's grace, you should respond with an overflow of generosity to others. And let me just give you a good biblical rule of thumb as it relates to how much you should give, okay? Let me encourage you to give however much you can give with joy that also requires sacrifice. Every word in that sentence matters. Give however much you can give with joy that also requires sacrifice. God has called us to be cheerful givers. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 tells us that. He loves a cheerful giver. So how much can you give with joy? Okay, that's, that's the question. But He also calls us to be sacrificial givers. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, we are called to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That means that I give to the degree that that my neighbor's burden becomes my burden. I give so much that I am now burdened because of the amount that I I give. To to give sacrificially means I literally am giving so much, I have to give up something else in order to give that much. That's sacrificial giving. Now, some people give sacrificially without joy. They give a lot, but they're mad about it. That misses the point. Other people give with great joy because it requires no sacrifice, so they're very happy. That also misses the point. There is a fine point there somewhere where I'm giving sacrificially, so I'm, having, I'm giving so much I have to give up something else in order to give this much, 
but I'm still able to do it with cheerfulness. I'm still doing this as an act of worship. It's not a, a, a matter of law or drudgery or a burden. It's a matter of joy to do this. And so how much is that for you? I can't tell you. Okay, I cannot tell you that. You need to pray about that. Ask the Lord, what is that for me? What requires sacrifice on the one hand, but I can also do with joy on the other hand. And somewhere is that perfect marriage between sacrifice and joy that, uh, that is used for the kingdom and brings God uh, great, uh, great glory. Okay, so here's the last thing I want to talk about this morning. We've talked about why to give. We've talked about how much. And that's something you need to ask the Holy Spirit about. But here's the, the final thing I want to do as we look at verses 2 through 4. I want to talk about how we should give, how, the manner in which we should give. That's what Jesus focuses in on in verses 2 through 4. It's a very simple structure of these verses. Jesus says, here's how you should not do it, and here's how you should do it. Okay? That's simple enough for everybody to follow. Here's how you shouldn't give. Here's how you should give. Let's look, first of all, at how not to give. Verse 2, Jesus says, so whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. So when God puts it on your heart, what you should give, Jesus tells us how not to do it. He says, don't announce your gift with the blasting of trumpets like hypocritical people do in order to get the applause of people. Because if that's what you're looking for, that will be your reward. That's what Jesus says in verse 2. So here's the Andrew Standard Version of verse 2. Don't toot your own horn when you give, okay? Don't blast the trumpet. In other words, look, we don't pass the plate here, but if we pass the plate, what this is meaning is before you put your gift in the offering plate, it's not like you stand up and do ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, and then you make it rain, you know, so that everybody around you says, wow, boy, they are very spiritual, well done. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't announce it with trumpets. Don't make a big deal of it in order to get the applause of people. Why? Because if that's what you're after, the applause of people, guess what? That's what you're going to get. Say that one more time a little bit louder, Miss Betty. That's it. And that's it. That's the point. If what you're after is the applause of people, you will get it. And that's all you'll get. See, that's the point. Jesus says, if if that's what you're after, to be seen, to be applauded by people, you already have your reward. That was the reward you were after, to be applauded. You got the applause, and the moment the applause is over, the reward is over. So Jesus says, don't announce it with trumpets to be applauded. Right? Jesus talks about those who pray for appearances' sake. This is somebody who doesn't really care about giving. They care about the recognition for the gift. That's the reason. It's kind of a kind of pseudo-righteousness that's just for show. Jesus says, don't, don't do that. that. That reward that you're after, well, it, it's meaningless. It's inferior. It's a fleeting reward. As soon as the applause fades, the reward is over. There, it's, a, it's a counterfeit. Um, I, I lived in the Philippines for a couple of months my senior year of high school and lived with a missionary we were planting a church, and here's I had a lot of cool experiences there, but one of the cool things I got to do in the Philippines is I got to buy a Rolex watch out the window of my taxi <laughs> for $20. I really got a good deal. 
And at 17, I was very proud, you know, of that Rolex. I was excited until a friend told me it was a knockoff. Here's the point. The counterfeit feels good until you see it for what it is. When you realize it's a fraud. And if that's the reward you want, it maybe feels good for a moment, but you realize it's empty. So instead, here's how you should give. Look at what Jesus says in verses 3 and 4. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be, let's say this next part, in secret. And your father who sees in secret will what? Reward you. You see there's two types of giving. There's two types of rewards. There's a giving that's for show, for applause from people to impress the crowd. And then there's a kind of giving that's for an audience of one. It's for the Lord and him alone. There's a kind of reward that the first giving gets you. It's applause and then it's over. There's another kind of reward when you give for the Lord and for his glory alone. Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do it in secret. In other words, this is not something that you flaunt. It's not something you announce with a trumpet. It's something you do quietly. You're not doing it for attention. Now, listen, does that mean that if someone sees you give, you know, it negates the reward? No. I used to think this. When I was a kid, I would give an offering at our church. We had an offering box in the back of the building. And I like Mission Impossible, you know, I'd slip over there to the offering box, check left and right, make sure nobody was watching me, I'd stick it in, you know. It's, it's okay, if somebody sees you give, no problem there. But if that's the reason you're giving, see, if that's the purpose in order to be seen, that's what Jesus is addressing. That, that if, if that's your purpose, that others would look at you and be impressed, the Lord won't be impressed. But instead, if you come with a kind of humble, sincere quiet righteousness. Like the widow woman in Mark 12. She doesn't have a lot of money. She's got two pennies. There's not a lot of flash or sizzle. She's not making it rain. She just puts her two pennies in the offering plate quietly. And Jesus looks at that and says, the Lord is pleased with that. It's a quiet, humble obedience. Not to be noticed or recognized by people, but simply because you know that the Lord sees Notice the promise as we close here this morning. Look at the promise that Jesus makes right here in verse 4. Your father who sees, can we, you could just put a period right there and just worship. Your father who sees. You know that your father sees you? He notices you? He recognizes you? Maybe no one else will ever notice the gift you give, but the father notices it. You know, that applies not just to the giving of our financial gifts, but the giving of our time, the giving of our talents. Maybe you serve even here at Moberly. Maybe you've been serving up in the video booth, or maybe you're serving in kids' ministry, and it's not something that's very uh, obvious position of, of service. Maybe you're kind of in obscurity a little bit, and nobody ever notices you, but do you realize the Father sees? What if no one ever knew but God? Is God big enough and good enough and glorious enough to still do it? Is he worth it enough to still just obediently and faithfully serve him, even if he is the only one who ever sees? Jesus promises your father sees, and the father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, what is that reward? There are certainly pastors who will say, well, if you give, you know, the Lord will 
bless you 70 times seven. You know, you give sacrificially, you'll fill your bank account up. The Bible never promises us that. The reality is if I have $10 and I give you five, now I have $5. And there's no promises in the Bible that I'm going to ever recoup those five. But there is a reward. What is the reward? Well, frankly, it's a beyond my pay grade. I don't know. I have no idea what that reward is. All I know is it's going to be in equal measure to God's goodness, which is pretty good. Just consider uh, this last verse, Matthew 7, 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things? To those who ask him, do you realize that the Father who sees in secret and will reward you, this, this is the Father who in, in James 1 describes as the giver of every good thing. Every good gift comes from the Father above. That good Father is the one who will reward you. I don't know what it will be. I just know it will be pretty great because He's pretty great. Amen? So as we close today, let me just encourage you as you think about this question of giving. And as you think, how, God, how do you want me to give? Let me just encourage you with one simple idea, and that is wherever you happen to be in your giving, take one step further into obedience, okay? One step. So, like, you don't couch to 5K, doesn't happen overnight. It ta- <laughs> Thanks, Shane. Uh, it takes place one step at a time, right? Step one, put down the potato chips. Step two, get off the couch. Step three, take a few steps. Step four, jog a little. Step five, jog a little bit more. You just take a step at a time. Giving is the same way. So if you've never given anything and you say, okay, God wants to crush and reform me. How does this work out in my life? If you've never given anything, let me take you to, to encourage you to take one step, give something. Okay, that would be one step of obedience today to move from giving nothing to giving something. If you, if you give something, but it's irregular, kind of haphazard, not much thought, then maybe your one step is to move from kind of random every now and then giving to regular giving. I'm going to give on the regular. If you say, Pastor, I give on the regular. I give 1% of my income. Praise God for that. Maybe one step for you today is to give 2% of your income and slowly work up. If you're way over here and you're already running the 5K, so to speak, and you're giving 10%, you say, I'm tithing. Maybe a step for you is to go above and beyond the tithe and give, to give an offering, right? Whatever that is for you. Listen, I can't tell you what that is. God's got to tell you that. And you need to think sacrifice with joy. God, what would you have me to do with sacrifice and with joy? And you just take that one step of obedience today, not to be seen, not to get applause, not to be impressive, but simply because you love him. Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, we're thankful for your gracious generosity to us. Thank you for being a God who gives. We're thankful for the gift of Jesus, the gift of the Spirit, the gift of this new life that we have in Christ. Lord, I do pray that you would crush in us our idolatries, crush in us that tight-fisted Scrooge that wants to pop up in my heart from time to time and reform me reform us into people who look and act a little bit more like Christ today, not to impress, not even to gain your pleasure. We already know we are as pleasing as we can possibly be because of Christ. 
not to earn your love, but as simply as a response to your love. Help us to be radically generous. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.